TheOAMNetwork.com. Power to the podcast. Welcome to The Permanent Record. I'm Josh Spickler, Executive Director of Just City. We're a nonprofit criminal justice reform organization based in Memphis, Tennessee. And The Permanent Record is our podcast about the criminal justice system and how we can work together to make it work better for everyone. Dr. Margaret Vandiver recently spoke at a Memphis event hosted by Tennesseans for Alternatives to the Death Penalty. Dr. Vandiver is a, is a retired professor of criminal justice at the University of Memphis, and her focus areas were state and collective violence, ranging from the use of the death penalty in America to contemporary instances of genocide. She's the author of Lethal Punishment, Lynchings, and Legal Executions in the South, and co-editor of Tennessee's New Abolitionists. She volunteers with the Lynching Sites Project here in Memphis. John Ashworth is the executive director of the Lynching Sites Project in Memphis, and he joins us today, too. He spent several decades in the military and the airline industry and now spends his time working on this very important project. In light of Tennessee's recent and pending executions, we wanted to talk to them about the history of lynching and its connections to our modern criminal justice system, which, of course, includes the use of the death penalty. Margaret and John, thanks for joining us. Thank you. Thank you. I guess we'll start with the Lynching Sites Project. John, tell us uh, about uh, this project, where it got its uh, uh, start here in Memphis, and how it fits into the national uh, conversation about lynching. Oh, okay. Uh, the Lynching Sites Project got started in December of 2015. Brian Stevenson, uh, who started the Equal Justice Initiative in Montgomery, Alabama, spoke to a group of people here in Memphis, and what he said is that, Shelby County, you have more lynchings uh, in, in, in the Tennessee than any other county in Tennessee, and you really should do something about that. And some of the people there that were the early founders, Randall Mullins, Sharon Mullins, um, which, and they started the Lynching Sites Project, and, and, and that's where it grew out of. Once they started, they linked up with, uh, with Margaret, who's been doing a tremendous amount of research. As I said earlier, she has a, does have an official role. But we're now up to 37 known lynchings in Shelby County. Yeah, so just quickly, the, the point of the Lynching Sites Project is kind of in the name, right? Your, your goal is to do what? Our goal is to give names to those people that were lynched, to identify where the, where the lynchings took place, and to actually put historical markers there to commemorate and, and, and honor those people who were actually lynched here in Shelby County. And, and that's what we're working on now. And the number that you were about to say, I interrupted you, was, is 30? We, we know about 37. And how many markers do we have? Um, we have presently put two markers out and we have four more in the works right now. We've dedicated two. We have, uh, and we have two others that we're going to be dedicating sometime within the next six months or so. And Margaret, I, I read a little bit in the intro about your scholarship and your, um, uh, research on this. Why is this important? Why did Brian Stevenson say that to us? Well, the, the prevalence of lynchings in the American South particularly, as a form of racial terror, is not just an historical occurrence. It has a lot of echoes in the modern era, and it's an area about which we just don't know as much as we should. There's been a lot of scholarly research in the last 15 or 20 years, and that now is being expanded by the Equal Justice Initiative and by the effort to place historical markers. Uh, what are some of those echoes? You said that, that uh, there are some echoes of lynching in the modern era. Talk to us about that. 
I'll talk to you about that as a social scientist, and okay. then maybe John can pick up on yes. some other. Uh, there's a small body of social science research that's come out in the last 10 years that looks at the correlations between the distributions of historic lynchings and various modern criminal justice practices and other phenomenon. And these studies have found a correlation between the distribution of lynchings and modern hate crime enforcement, growth rates in imprisonment, imposition of death sentences, executions, modern homicide rates in the South, housing segregation, support for capital punishment among whites, Ku Klux Klan mobilization, and even county mortality rates, intriguingly enough. Wow. So there are a number of ways in which the historic practice of lynching is connected to a number of current phenomenon. Now, no one yet has satisfactorily traced the causal chain between right. those right. two. That's a very complicated research question. But this is highly suggestive that lynching is much more than just a historical phenomenon. Right, right. because those, that list is not a good list. <laughs> no, it's it, not a good list. And, and you didn't say it, but the, the list of things that you read off, um, other research shows disproportionately affects people of color. And, and so, John, as you go and, and continue to build on, on uh, Dr. Vandiver's scholarship mm -hmm. of, of documenting sites where this happened, how does that work? Like, what is, what is how do you start? <laughs> and, and then how do you get to the point of a marker? Well, how we get to the point of a marker is doing, as she said, is doing the research of the actual circumstances surrounding that. As an example, L Persons, uh, and, and just to give you a very quick short form on that, L Person was suspected there was a young white girl, about 15 years old, I think, who was found lynched, murdered, head decapitated. El, the only reason L. Persons came to the attention of the authorities as a possible perpetrator was that some white family said, this man used to work for me, and he said to my wife one day, to my wife and I one day, that I had a dream about you last night. Because the authorities at that time thought that the murder had been committed by someone white. But the tenor of the time turned to him when that was said because he was a woodcutter. And they actually picked him up, tried to find evidence, couldn't release him thinking he'd lead him to it. It didn't. And so my point in that is that that stereotype then, that stereotype is still with us today in the way we see people of color. And a lot of that is tied to the era of lynching. It's also tied to the era before lynching started. But that attitude is a part of our culture today. And, and so let's talk more about the L, L persons um, okay. uh, lynching. And the, I mean, we have a marker. Uh, we do, we on do have a marker. Summer Avenue, I believe. It's on Summer Avenue. And, um, and that, correct me if I'm wrong, was relatively as easy in, in some instances as reading a newspaper account. <laughs> I mean, this was documented. This was not a small private it, thing that oh, happened it, in, in Memphis. Uh, the, doc, the, the lynchings that we know about, and it's important to keep that in mind, the lynchings that we know about are well documented mm -hmm. uh, because in the case of L. Persons, it, that was reported in newspapers all over the country. Just as we have the media today, press releases go out, and those people all across the country wrote about that. And in every instance, when you read about that incident, it doesn't really deal with his innocence. It deals with the fact that here's this black man who committed this atrocious crime. The facts of evidence has nothing to do with it. It's just the way he's painted and portrayed. Mm -hmm. And that gets repeated. 
What are some of the, the, the challenges, I mean, uh, open this for either of you, of, of getting a community like, like Shelby County, like Memphis, Tennessee, to the point of, in, of putting up a marker to this awful thing that it did, that it's people, that, that our ancestors, that are, that are you know, not that far behind and, or before its ancestors did. What are some of the challenges? Yeah, that, that's a very interesting question. And, and the, the gamut of challenges runs from very, very supportive to very, very much opposed. Uh, and it just depends on the community. I mean, it doesn't depend on whether or not it's a black or a white community. It's just, it just depends on the community. You know, there are cases that I worked on with whites who very much embraced and said, yes, we need to do this. There are cases that we're working on. We have one in process right now where the black community does want anything to do with it. So this idea of lynching, of being seen through the lens of what typically media or Hollywood has portrayed really is not accurate by any means. I mean, you, you run the complete range of emotions among all people. And then, and then when you look at it, you have relatives of the victim that have one set of ways of looking at it. You have relatives of the people who were the perpetrators who have another way of looking at it. And we, interesting, we found maybe even a third or fourth. You have people whose relatives were very much a part of the program, not as perpetrators, not as victims, but their, their relatives were very much involved, and they have emotions about that as well. Dr. Vander, you've done some research as, a, as an academic. You've done a lot of research in your time, but in support of Lynching Sites Project, give us a, a, an anecdote or a story about uh, a, a really rewarding moment in some of your research. Yes, I can. I'll go back to the L. Persons case. <laughs> yes. uh, John and Tom Carlson and I were working very hard with Ancestry.com uh, trying to find left, uh, relatives our family members of L persons and we were able to track back in time from 1917 when he was killed uh, all the way back to the 1870s and then we were able to track forward in time not directly his descendants but his uh, siblings descendants and then we hit the 1940s and the 1940s is when the uh, census does not provide individual information. They hold that for a number of decades before they release it. So we hit a wall. We couldn't get any further than 1940. But on Ancestry, there's this neat function where if other people are doing research on the same names, they can contact you. Hmm. And we were able to contact a woman named Michelle Whitney, who lives north of Chicago. She was working on her family history going backwards. We put the two together, they intersected perfectly, wow. and she, for the first time in her life, realized that she was related to the victim of this very brutal lynching. Wow. She came down to Memphis when we installed the marker, and she and a collateral descendant of the little girl who was murdered, whose murder was the... Uh, precipitating event for all of this, those two descendants stood together and unveiled the marker together. Wow. how powerful. Um, and Ancestry.com, also powerful. You've been doing this. In fact, the book you wrote, uh, you told me before we started recording, you wrote many years ago, a decade or so ago. Uh, how has research gotten easier? What kind of things, I mean, you just talked about Ancestry.com, but how has is, is this work gotten easier? Ancestry is one another remarkable resource is mm -hmm. the Library of Congress Chronicling America, which is a vast resource of text searchable 
historic newspapers, and that is a gold mine. <laughs> but even saying that, you still have to go to archives. You still have to find microfilms sometimes. You still have to dig through dusty old court <laughs> records. You still have to do a lot of the older type of research. Yeah. But in terms of locating cases and uh, beginning to document them, it's much easier now. Yeah. John, what's the connection uh, of, of the Lynching, Lynching Sites Project to the Equal Justice Initiative and the Legacy Museum in Montgomery? Well, as I said, the, the two are not actually connected, but we, are, we probably work in parallel and with each other. Uh, they are the ones that have, that have done the research and have documented over 4,000 known lynchings throughout the country, and they are reporting this to the community as they did with us. When we lo- one of the things that we do when we locate where a lynching t- took place, they have a program called Community Remembrance, and it's a part of the museum. They go to the site of the actual lynching, and they collect soil, and they put it in a jar, and this jar goes into the museum. We do that here in Memphis, and we've done that for, even though we put two markers out, we did that for the people, uh, for the people's grocery lynching that started out of mm-hmm. B. Wells' career. Mm-hmm. Uh, we did it for L. Persons, um, and we've got a couple others that we're going to be doing. So there is a direct tie-in that we have with them. So the soil has gone to the museum. The soil has gone to the museum. One set of soil goes to the museum, and a duplicate jar stays here in Memphis. And one of the things unique about what uh, EJI is doing, they have a duplicate column that has the names of all the people lynched. One of those columns will be coming to Memphis, and we in the Lynching Sites Project, Leonard Blakely on our board of directors, is kind of spearheading that effort to work with other people here in Memphis to figure out where we're going to put the column uh, that that tells that story about lynchings here. Right, and so for folks listening who may not uh, have an image of what this museum, I think the centerpiece, and I haven't been myself, but I've seen pictures, the centerpiece of this museum are... Uh, is this structure with uh, hanging columns with, uh, yes. I believe, in the inscription of, of names for... Uh, the names are there. In, in, uh, on, from counties across the South or across right. the country. Uh, and so what you're describing is a duplicate of that column for Shelby County that would come to the community. Exactly. Do we, do we have a date, a timeline? Is there anything that, that we should know no, about No, we that? don't. EJI has said, because people all over the country are asking for that duplicate column, and EJI has said sometime in 2019, they're developing a protocol as for how that's going to happen. Uh, but sometime in 2019, we expect that to happen. When, I don't know. Where, I don't know just yet. So, Dr. Vandiver, let's talk a little bit more about the death penalty and some of the... Uh, some of the similarities, uh, and, and, and I mean, this is really probably a closer question, but like, do you think as, as a sociologist, as a person who studied this for, for a long time, we will ever look back at the death penalty in the way that we look back with such unease at this idea of, of lynchings? Um, if so, why, you know, just put, put this all into perspective for us. We, this state recently executed someone. We have two, two dates remaining in this year. We're still actively pursuing, uh, this and and I just wonder if you if you feel like it's slowing down is it coming to an end what will it look like to us 50 years from now the death penalty is slowing down tremendously uh, in terms of death sentences particularly uh, they have dropped to a very small fraction of what they were in the 1990s uh, the system is to some extent collapsing under its own weight Uh, This is not really judicial intervention that's doing this. I think it's more a structural or bureaucratic situation where the death penalty sucks up an amazing amount of time, energy, and resources for a vanishingly small number of cases. 
And because of that, it becomes a real challenge to move these cases through the process. Ultimately, I think people begin to say, it's just not worth it. Even people who support the death penalty. There was an interesting column by George Will, a very well-known conservative uh, commentator just a few days ago, saying, get rid of it. Mm -hmm. Get rid of it. Uh, Because it is such a burden to the criminal justice system, and it uh, pulls resources from other areas. Uh, I think at this point, realistically, there's little hope of judicial abolition. I think it's more likely that it simply will fade away. Uh, Why do you say that about uh, judicial abolition? Well, simply the makeup of the Supreme Court. Uh, This would probably come in as an Eighth and Fourteenth Amendment challenge, uh, very similar to the series of cases from the late 60s and early 1970s. And unless you had five justices who were willing to say that uh, not just in practice, but in essence, the death penalty was unconstitutional, then you would have the same thing that we had in the 1970s. They threw it out based on um, inequities in its imposition and then brought back these shiny new statutes <laughs> and began sentencing people with precisely the same inequities in imposition. And you know, we can go around that circle again, maybe, right. but it's not going to be very useful. Well, and that's, uh, you know... <laughs> We are really efficient, right, and persistent in our, you know, persecution, frankly, of, of people in this country. And, and John, I wonder if you can speak to why you do this, right? You, you had a long career. Uh, mm-hmm. We talked a little about, bit about before we started recording. And, uh, and you could be retired and you could uh, do whatever you want to do in your retirement. And yet and you're working on an issue that has risen and fallen and risen and fallen over really human history. And, and the history of this country is so marred by this. Why do you do it? Why do you think this is going to make a difference? I'm glad you asked me that question. Let me just take a moment, if I can, and tell you a story. I was with a friend of mine the other day. He's white. We were driving. And he said to me, because we talk about this, and he said to me, John, what good is it going to do for a 14 or 15-year-old black child, male or female, to know about the history of lynching? And I said to him, it's not going to do that child any good to know about this. It is going to do you some good. And when I say you, I'm saying you as white America to, to understand and understand the history of that. If you know about it and you can humanize them, then the decisions and actions that you take as people with power will change the outcomes of the mass incarceration. It will change the outcome of the unfairness of the criminal justice system. It will change the outcome when you make a decision as to whether or not you're going to hire someone because you don't like his name, you don't like the hairstyle. This is why I do that work. Uh, James Cone talked about this in the Crossville Infantry and said, you know, what he railed against was the economic disparity, you know, the unfairness in the criminal justice system. I mean, for young African Americans, when you look at the Tamir Rice, the Sandra Bland's, the Juan Castile, on and on and on, and say, wait a minute, this is still with us. So this is why I do this work to get more people aware. One of the things that we've been able to do in Lynching Sites Project is to give a safe space for people who are different from each other to have honest conversation. What does that look like? Where do you, where do you make that space? And um, oh, I, I, will, I will point out your, your yes. website, which is quite remarkable. Good. The map is, is the, quite striking. On the second and the fourth uh, Monday of every month, we meet at First Baptist Church, 200 East Parkway North, and I would invite as many people as possible to attend that. Um, 
we have very honest, open conversation. And it is difficult conversation, and it is not comfortable. But the one thing that all of us have to understand, we are all born into this. Nobody in that room is guilty of having perpetrated that. Nobody in that room is a direct victim of that. But we're all born into this culture. And if we can't begin to understand that, then our dynamics of mass incarceration, of poor people that's even dragging the city of Memphis down, we can't change that. The only way we change that dynamic is to have all of us understand it. Yeah. Um, let's, let's talk, uh, Dr. Vanderbilt, a little bit about your book. It's called Lethal Punishment. Uh, tell us uh, what it's about and, and why you wrote it. I was looking into the relationship between uh, historic death penalty cases and lynchings. Uh, when you look back at the historical records, there are cases that you can describe and you can challenge people, tell me if this was a lynching or tell me if this was a legal trial. And sometimes they're indistinguishable. Mm -hmm. uh, there were scenes in courtrooms that were um, as wild as any lynch mob. There were people who were dragged out of legal trials and lynched on the courtroom steps. There was a trial in Dyersburg of an African-American man accused of a crime against a white girl in which the lynch mob itself entered the courtroom summoned witnesses, sat a jury, wow. called the former sheriff in to testify, took testimony, examined the defendant, uh, and then found him guilty and hanged him outside the courtroom. Wow. So there are really uh, interesting overlaps between the two practices. Uh, when you get to the modern death penalty, uh, there's a sociologist named David Garland who has uh, examined these issues very deeply, and he argues that much of the capital jurisprudence of the U.S. Supreme Court has been an effort to make the modern death penalty look as little like lynching uh -huh. as possible. We're going to go slow. We're going to have all sorts of due process, which in fact often does not provide due process, but at least we've got the, um, it appears to be there. Uh, we're going to make this private rather than public. We're going to make it central rather than scattered out in different locations. Uh, and in that sense, if you just look at the modern death penalty, the process of it, it does not look like historic lynchings. But when you change your view and look at where it occurs and to whom it occurs, then you begin to see the similarities. And if you look at the distribution of modern executions, it parallels the distribution of historic lynchings to a very great degree. Uh, it parallels the distribution of slavery. Uh, I just figured a little equation of this morning looking at the uh, 1,483 executions under our modern laws. 87% of those took place in jurisdictions that had slavery in mm -hmm. 1860. 87. 87. 87. 87. Wow. And some, a significant number of the 13% that did not were of people who dropped their appeals and insisted on being mm -hmm. executed, forced the state to execute them. So what you see geographically is a tremendously close match between these events of slavery and lynching and then the modern execution. And, of course, when you look at the people who 
go to the death chambers and who are executed, you see an overrepresentation of African American mm-hmm. men, and particularly of African American men with white victims, and maybe particularly even more than that with white female victims. There's this same dynamic that played out with many of the lynchings mm-hmm. where there's a deep fear of African American men, particularly as a danger to white right. women. And you can certainly track that through the media as well as through the criminal mm-hmm. justice system in modern cases. One of the things that has, has sort of chipped away at the death penalty, I think, in our consciousness is exonerations and the work of uh, the Innocence Project and similar projects like that. Do you have numbers about, about that, about how that's impacted uh, this experiment? I think that the current number of exonerations is 163, but that is a low number because particularly in recent years, when a case falls apart against a death row inmate, the state is likely to try to dodge the exoneration by offering an Alford plea, which lets the person say, I maintain my innocence but I will enter a guilty plea. Right, it's this weird legal construct. It, it's the strangest legal construct. Yeah. It's yes and no at the same time. Right. But from the state's point of view, no compensation, no admission right. of right. error. And a conviction. And a the conviction. State conviction. Yes. You know, and a very important part of that, part, that's part of why Brian Steeson found the Equal Justice Initiative, because Alabama has no public defender office. Right. And that's why he started. So it ties all right back to what she, exactly what she's saying. And really... When you look at this, even in present day, it all comes back and sits on top of economics. Mm. Yes. Um, and Brian Stevenson, by the way, in the George Will column um, you mentioned, which we'll post in the description uh, of this episode, is representing the, the person that George Will writes about at the very beginning yes. of that. And, yes. of course, is, yes. is working uh, yes. to, mm-hmm. to save this man's life, uh, this man who, uh, by all accounts, really doesn't know anything about yes. <laughs> what's happening to him anymore. Um, uh, so... I want to ask what you, what's the near future for Lynching Sites Project? What are you excited about? What can the community help you achieve? Oh, we're, we're, the one thing we're, we're excited about, one is bringing that column here. And, bring, and the other thing, in these 37 lynchings, that she can probably speak to spell and I can't, we don't know the exact location. And so once we bring, it's not just a case of bringing the column, it's bringing the column and putting it in an environment that begins to tell the more comprehensive story mm-hmm. about lynchings in Memphis and to begin to tell the more comprehensive story about Memphis, why it is where it is right now with this huge African-American population that seems to be locked into poverty, that seems to be rising even as we continue to go forward. So I think that's the narrative that we can do. And I think Lynching Sites Project is probably better positioned to have the conversation with people who are different around race. Uh, I'm not sure what all of those reasons are. We don't, we, you know, we don't really get into who's guilty and who's not guilty. We don't get into law. We get into what actually happened and how it is shaping today. Right, right. Excellent. Well, that's excellent work. And um, before we leave, I want to talk quickly. We're recording this on October 1st. I believe the next execution date in Tennessee is the 11th. Yes. Can you tell us uh, about that person and, and what, uh, his, uh, what his case is, um, what the status of his case is? What, what are we doing? I don't really have detailed information, but I understand that the Tennessee Supreme Court is going to hear a 
challenge and appeal to an opinion that was handed down over the summer concerning the lethal injection protocol. And it's um, kind of an indication of just how bizarre the modern death penalty is that the um, judge issued a ruling against the inmates who were challenging the lethal injection protocol. Uh, IRIC tried to raise that issue on appeal the Supreme Court went ahead and executed him and now is hearing the issue. So if they thought it had enough merit to hear it, why couldn't they have let him live long enough to hear the appeal? Uh, So now after Eirich was executed, um, the next inmate whose name is Edmund Zagorski is going to be bringing this and I believe the oral arguments are on Wednesday. Uh, If the court rules in his favor, then I assume his execution would be stayed while they go on and and work on the um, issue of the uh, lethal injection drugs. If not, then he will go on and also be executed. Right. If I could go back to that question you asked about what the public can do, because as I I didn't expect that question, now that I'm sitting here thinking about it, uh, two things. One is giving the lynching sites project of people a chance to have a conversation or a listening circle in their communities, in their churches, and so forth. The other thing is, I don't know if you're aware or your audience is aware that Tennessee passed the equivalent of the Emmett Till Act, the Tennessee cold case uh, historical, and I'm working on that. We're setting up a reconciliation committee, for want of a better word, to cover the entire Mm -hmm. state. And so if the public uh, has interest and having honest conversation, I get into blame or shame right. or guilt. We would very much like to be a part of that, and we'd very much like to have them con- you know, just go to our website and send me an email, and we'll do it. Yeah, give us a little more, though, on the reconciliation project and, and the law. What did the law create, and, and what, what comes next? Governor Haslam signed into law in May of this year. He signed into law the Tennessee Cold Case Legislation Initiative. And what that does, it establishes the ability, establishes an office within the minority affairs of the Tennessee legislature, to actually go out and look at these old cold cases. In fact, there's one in process right now of a man lynched in 1940, Elbert Williams. Uh, that one is in Brownsville, Tennessee. Uh, he was, because he decided he wanted to help people to vote, he was picked up on a Thursday night by the police department in uniform, never seen alive again, not charged with anything. Sunday morning, his body was pulled out of the river. He was taken that day, buried in an unmarked grave. Uh, no investigation, no prosecution, nothing. And he was working, and he was doing work on behalf of the civil rights movement of the NAACP. Okay. That case has been reopened, uh, and and they're going to look into that case. And there are other cases along those lines all across Tennessee uh, that's now that the legislature has created the authority right. to do that. Wow, that's, uh, that's good work. Uh, so, yeah, you can find out uh, more about the Lynching Sites Project uh, at lynchingsitesmem, lynchingsitesmem.org. Right. You can get in touch with John Ashworth yes. there. Right. D- Dr. Vandiver, thank you also for joining you. us. I'd like to end, I think, because uh, John is wearing a pen of Ida B. Wells and the, the Lynching Sites Project website has a quote that, that is, the way to right wrongs is to turn the light of truth upon them. Absolutely. Something that Ida B. Wells said. So thank you both for turning the light of truth upon these wrongs. You know, I have to add, doing a podcast or doing a broadcast like this is just one more way we shine that light of truth out there. Thank you. That's right. Thank you all. That was Dr. Margaret Vandiver and John Ashworth of the Memphis Lynching Sites Project. They're really doing incredible work 
and I think it'll change things. It was a real honor to have them on the podcast. If you want to dive deeper into this issue, pick up a copy of Dr. Vanderbilt's book, Lethal Punishment, Lynchings and Legal Executions in the South. The best way to do that is to call Burke's Bookstore here in Memphis. They can help you track down a copy. We'll link to the George Will column that we discussed in the description of this episode. And again, you can find out more about the Lynching Sites Memphis Project at lynchingsitesmemmem.org. That's lynchingsitesmem.org. It includes a map of the verified locations of lynchings in Shelby County. Thanks again to Katie Raines for helping produce this episode, and as always, to Carla and Gilworth at the OAM Network for their support of the podcasting community in Memphis. Check out some other shows, some that have a little more uh, light content than this one did, at uh, theoamnetwork.com. Jeff Hewlett, of course, wrote and performs She Got Gone, the original theme music for The Permanent Record. Thanks, Jeff. I'm Josh Spickler. This is The Permanent Record, a production of Just City. Learn more about our work at JustCity.org. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter at JustCity901. Make sure you subscribe to The Permanent Record so you don't miss an episode. Give us a rating. It helps us build our audience. In a just city, we listen and we speak up. Our thanks to you for doing both. TheOAMNetwork.com Power to the podcast.